welcome to another episode of History and Conversation, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Historical Research at the University of London. I'm Liam Cunningham. In this episode, Joe Fox, director of the IHR, speaks with Professor Richard Vinan about how historians should respond to the dramatic events of 2020. Richard is Professor of Modern History at King's College London and a specialist in contemporary history. In this interview, Joe and Richard discuss the role of contemporary history at times of significant change and what contemporary historians can bring to our understanding of the COVID-19 pandemic. Joe spoke to Richard soon after an IHR online event in July 2020 in which they both took part. The event, entitled Writing Histories of 2020, looked at how future historians might write about the events of this year and how we should best prepare the ground for them. very much uh, Richard for agreeing to, to talk to, to me today. It, I found it really interesting in the lecture when you were talking about notions of time, periodization, temporality, and I've been very struck uh, by comments in, in the media more broadly about COVID being a turning point and, and particularly this phrase comes up in time and again. Um, we won't go back to normal. We won't go back to how it was before. And I can't help but think that this has been uh, a refrain throughout the ages when, when societies have faced challenges like this. And I just wondered whether you could reflect on, on COVID as a, as a potential turning point. Yeah, well, I mean, I think partly, um, you know, the cliche would be it's too early to say and this, I think, for once is really true in the sense that we don't even know the most basic outcome of COVID. We don't know what the kind of trajectory of it in purely health terms is. So the effects, if they find a vaccine in October versus the effects, if it turns out there's never going to be a vaccine, both of which you know, are possible, um, are obviously going to be different. We don't, I think, fully understand the economic effects because we'll only begin to understand those when the lockdown ends and when we can see um, what kind of full consequences are going to be. So in that sense, I think there's real uncertainty. I think also that um, there's an important generational thing here. So I'm always struck by, uh, I think Geoffrey Howe has this phrase about the way in which economic thinking is marked by particularly traumatic events. So he says, you know, in his youth, uh, he said it felt like the, um, the lines of the unemployed snaked around the corridors of the Treasury, the unemployed from the 1930s, because the event was still haunted by the idea of mass unemployment. And then for Howe's generation, the 1970s and inflation was the kind of dominant memory which went on influencing them for a long time. And then Howe suggests, suggested that, well, the financial uh, crisis of 2008, again, had kind of redefined how people thought about the economy. Now, clearly, COVID is going to redefine how people think about all sorts of things, but redefine it probably in a very long-term way with uh, possibly uh, different people having different experiences of uh, the pandemic and the lockdown according to kind of where they are. So obviously where they are geographically um, and also where they are in terms of age and prosperity. So obviously the lockdown is a wildly different experience if you're a 58-year-old university professor with a big house or if you're a 20-year-old sharing a bedroom with your brother in Tamworth. Um, and, you know, the 20-year-old sharing with his brother in Tamworth is going to be 
influenced by the memory of what happened for a long, long time afterwards. And I think it's actually very hard to see the different ways in which that might be interpreted. So I think we sometimes at the moment have this slightly straightforward view that A, there must be this big kind of reformation after COVID, uh, and B, it's often seen that this is kind of a left-right split, that, you know, mm -hmm. Donald Trump is on the right, is the most kind of anti-lockdown, bullish person about COVID, and then the kind of West European left has uh, a much more sort of um, cautious approach. But it seems to me there are all sorts of divisions to do with age, to do with public sector versus private sector, that will influence how people experience that, and this will then influence very much how they perceive how we come out of all this. So um, that's part of an answer. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting, Richard, isn't it? Because I was thinking about the kinds of identity politics that COVID has surfaced in, in relation to sort of class, gender, race, and, and of course, generational divisions. And we're seeing that really playing out now between young and old over the weekend, this sort of fledgling plan to lock down the over 50s and see things have started to point and and I wonder whether what this has really surfaced about Britain that we can can reflect on from a historical point of view um yeah I mean I think uh it it has brought to the surface lots of things about Britain um I think it would also be very important to say that um we, that you know, COVID is a global event, and that um, it, it can't be understood. I think it is at the moment very understood in national frontiers, and I think how people have reacted to COVID is very defined by a uh, nation. But um, its long-term consequences will be very much to do with the fact it's present all over the world. Um, I think, with regard to Britain, obviously, one says again and again that COVID will tie in with changes that are already happening. And one of the bizarre things is that I would have said British politics was poised at a unique moment of drama just after the last election. I did seriously wonder whether there was going to be a transformation like there was with the American politics in the 1960s, where, you know, the Democrats became a different kind of party, uh, where um, uh, they ceased to be a, a Southern white party, where mm. the Republicans became a more kind of obviously conservative party. Um, and I did wonder, is the Conservative Party going to become a working class party? And is the Labour Party become, going to become the party of, you know, the, um, the politically correct middle classes? Um, now, the, the weird thing is that this unique moment of drama has now been so overshadowed by what's happened subsequently. Um, that in a funny kind of way, it's almost like one, you know, like that thing they used to have on French level crossings that one train can hide another. You feel one turning point might hide another. Um, so again, that's not a very good answer, is it, Joe? I'm just saying, I don't know continuously. It's difficult to say, isn't it? And, and we haven't yet had um, all of the continuing uncertainty, well, we have got the continuing uncertainty over Brexit and what that's doing. And you're absolutely right to, to, to point to the, the global dimensions of this, because you can already, already see some of the ge geopolitical implications of... Yeah, I mean, I think with Brexit, um, I mean, obviously, in some ways, it's very hard to imagine that if the vote was run again tomorrow, it would yield the same result, because uh, lots of the things the Brexiteers said would, I think, look less plausible now. I mean, I would not want to be the person saying, 
we shouldn't listen to experts um, in the present circumstances. Um, but on the other hand, in a funny kind of way, COVID is so overshadowing Brexit um, yeah. that it may take it off the agenda completely. Um, and um, yeah, these wider kind of geopolitical things. So obviously um, Brexit partly goes with a kind of geopolitical fantasy that Britain's going to play a different role in the world. Um, now, of course, the world in which we're seeking to play a different role is itself very different. Um, and I think, again, this may accelerate things that were happening anyway. Um, but uh, it will be uh, a complicated kind of process to, um, to work this out. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting as well that where historians have been making interventions in, in all of these debates has been around the notion of parallels, mm. you know, the parallels of previous pandemics, the par parallels of previous crises. Is it worth drawing a parallel? Because on the, on the one hand, we talk about this as being a unique event. Mm. On the other hand, there is a constant dialogue of parallel. Is it worth <laughs> making? <laughs> It's, it's always worth drawing parallels, partly because poor old historians should use what limited tools we've got. So since we don't do, you know, regression analysis, or on the whole don't do regression analysis, um, or um, uh, uh, we aren't capable of predicting um, uh, how um, the pandemic is going to play out in statistical terms, um, all we can offer is our poor little historical comparisons. Um, I think they are useful but often useful in a negative sense, so often useful because they put things in perspective. I do think it's important to say um, that uh, I think in a funny kind of way, COVID has hit us so hard precisely because we in the West are unused to kind of great dramas. So, um, you know, if I tweeted out 70,000 deaths isn't very many, then I mean, I don't tweet, but if I, I mean, assume if I did that, my, my phone would melt with abuse from people <laughs> saying this was a shocking thing to say. But obviously, in historical terms, it's true. And I'm assuming that probably people in China are old enough to remember, you know, the Cultural Revolution, uh, the Great Famine, um, uh, they, they, you know, their definition of what constitutes a lot of people um, mm. is different from what British people in yeah. 2020's definition might be. So in that sense, I think it is useful to have parallels, comparisons, even if only to put things in perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, uh, there are parallels in terms of, um, in terms of uh, what it might take to change a society, um, mm -hmm. so that uh, I am kind of intrigued by, oh, how people might think differently after COVID, things like that. Yeah. Um, which of course may be a change in people's behavior rather than a change. I think one of the things we tend to do is to look for change in government behavior. It may be that it's rather as radicals talked about in the 1960s, sometimes this might be a change in people's behavior rather than a change in the behavior of the state. Yeah, I mean, thinking about, thinking about what, what this is, brought to the fore in historical terms, I was really sort of struck by, by a point that one of um, uh, fellow pan panellists made on the evening uh, that, that we were discussing this issue, Kevin Siena, and he was talking about, you know, the, the deaths of the pandemic of 1918 exceeding those of the First World War mm. happening sort of at, at exactly the same time, 1918, and yet 
the, the almost the entire sort of focus, certainly in the West, being on on the war itself and and the sort of devastating effect, mm. whilst not really talking about the effects of the pandemic. Mm. And that's certainly what stayed in in the public consciousness. And I was beginning to reflect on what that why that actually was. Is it because one crisis is is kind of man made, mm. and that then causes one to reflect a little bit more on on what we've done to ourselves rather than something natural that that can't be stopped and prevented and i just wondered um your thoughts on kevin's point about why certain historical episodes remain in the consciousness for their for their devastating effects and yet others that seem you know in terms of deaths at least um more significant fade into the background yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's a very interesting comparison. I suppose part of the answer is because the First World War had to be kind of memorialised because, you know, the First World War, as you say, was a man-made event, but it was also a kind of consciously remembered event um, and an event where people had to find a meaning in it so that I'm struck by the extent to which uh, historical views are influenced by the First World War. Uh, so that, oh, someone like Trevelyan, when he writes um, uh, after the First World War, people, people reviewing him say, well, this is the death of Whig history because the kind of Whig notion of progress can't survive the First World War. Um, I'm struck by the influence of the First World War on Listen Strachey and the kind of ways in which people redefine the Victorian period. Now, in lots of ways, it's less easy to find a meaning in an epidemic of flu than it is to find the meaning in a war. Um, and obviously also in lots of ways, the state having been behind the war then had to be behind the way it was commemorated. So I think that's very important. I think it's also important to say um, with uh, both world wars that uh, as I suspect with COVID, there are memories or experiences that we're immediately conscious of and then there are things that we may become conscious of later on, which were kind of partly hidden by the talk of the time. So um, it seems to me that with the, um, the First World War, obviously there are some ways in which uh, Spanish flu is itself a byproduct of the First World War. It's a byproduct of the kind of um, agitation and population and movement and so on of the First World War. Uh, obviously, there are all sorts of civilian deaths caused in the First World War, which we tend to be rather close to because the British have a view of kind of a Western Front model of the First World War in which casualties are all adult male combatants. Uh, likewise, with the Second World War, um, uh, we uh, underplay, I think, the uh, effects of the Second World War outside Europe, so particularly and strikingly the Bengal famine, as far as the British Empire is concerned. Um, which involved in some ways much more kind of upheaval than as far as Britain itself was concerned, military events. And uh, I do very much wonder how in the long term we'll write the history of COVID. And as I said in the lecture, I do feel, you know, one day someone will write a book about what happened to Indian migrant laborers um, in the immediate aftermath of the Indian lockdown. And they may actually say, well, this is kind of like the big event of COVID. Um, and, um, We'll have to see. Yeah, I mean, one of our jobs, of course, is is to write that history in the future as historians. Mm. But I wonder, you know, how historical expertise might inform 
what's happening now. I know that, that some other countries have included humanities scholars on their equivalent of SAGE, for example, right. because of exactly that issue about people's behaviours. How do humans react in these kinds of circumstances becomes actually quite a critical, critical question. And I just wondered, you know, how historians might lend their expertise to assisting um, in finding uh, solutions to the current current crisis. I don't know. I'd be intrigued to know if um, the uh, panels of expertise in other countries include historians rather than behavioural scientists or economists or people like that. People who I think are more used to dealing with uh, prediction. It seems to me that historians are slightly having our bluff called under these circumstances in that uh, historians are often very good at making predictions but rarely making predictions where we might actually be proved right or wrong in yeah. the very near future. Um, uh, I think um, that uh, COVID is something that is very problematic for a lot of understanding precisely because bits of it are so unprecedented. Mm -hmm. um, so clearly uh, the speed with which it spread, yeah. um, clearly the sense of, although there have been diseases in the past which have caused very comparable, perhaps greater numbers of deaths, I think in, in modern times it's something that seems unprecedented and startling. And also I think because of actually the, the unpredictability of people's responses, so that um, historians wouldn't necessarily have been very good at guessing how people were going to react. So I, I was stunned by the success of the British lockdown. I remember cycling around South London council estates through which I might normally hesitate to go, which are completely empty, and thinking when the summer comes, there are going to be riots. These kids have been locked up for three months, um, are going to emerge furious. Um, and so far, I've been proved wrong. This hasn't happened. Um, uh, I think everybody was surprised by uh, the degree to which the lockdown was observed in Britain. Um, so in that sense, um, I'm not sure historians should necessarily always assume that our job is to be there providing kind of policy advice. I think, you know, historians probably um, uh, would best do to cultivate modesty and what I suspect are not going to be great years ahead for the historical professionals. I'd like to end on a more optimistic, optimistic note, Richard, I think. Um, I, I just wonder whether there were any kind of, um, I've, I've, there's also been a period where um, COVID coincided um, with commemorations around, around, uh, around VE Day and the two seem to come together and it's interesting too how we turn to history to mm -hmm. help through some of these some of these crises and how history then becomes a tool, um, a means of coping and, and, and reflecting on our past in, in perhaps more optimistic, or optimistic ways. Um, <laughs> you don't have to answer that optimistically. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not quite going to actually. I mean, I think um, that the, the commemoration of the Second World War was very interesting and obviously even more interesting because it took place alongside COVID, but also, um, as you of all people would know, tremendously deceptive yeah. in the sense that, uh, first of all, 
it was a very strange commemoration because, for first of all, V-Day has not, in fact, traditionally been a big date in the British calendar because, of course, British forces went on fighting for another three months after V-Day. Those countries for whom V-Day -E is genuinely important, Germany, for example, tend not to commemorate it as a joyous occasion. You know, it's a kind of day to be remembered with sobriety. Um, uh, I think also... Um, I was struck by the fact that in lots of ways, the Second World War has become important to be remembered in inverted commas, i.e. to be the object of commemoration, precisely as it ceases to be remembered, i.e. talked about by people who actually lived through it, so that um, it's become a kind of simpler, more benign memory. I'm struck most of all by the lack of talk about actual fighting in memories of the Second World War. You really would think that the Second World War was an event that involved Vera Lynn, Bletchley <laughs> Park, and, um, you know, Wilfred Pickles. And <laughs> there was no British army involved in the war. Um, the Spitfire is a wonderful icon. And the Spitfires were over um, uh, Britain so often this summer that, you know, you began to wonder how the, the, the Luftwaffe ever dared attack us when we had so many Spitfires. But, um, you know, including, for example, a Spitfire fly past to mark the anniversary of the foundation of the National Health Service, an event which has nothing to do with the Royal Air Force. Now, if my friend and colleague David Edgerton was talking to you now, he would say, and he'd be right to say it, um, that the icon of Britain during the Second World War is not the Spitfire, not the brave little single-seater interceptor fighter that mm. uh, operated over the home counties, but the Lancaster, the bloody great heavy bomber um, mm. that knocked Dresden to pieces, yeah. which you know, exemplified a different, yes. obviously very heroic, casualties among bomber command are much higher than casualties among fighter pilots, um, but at the same time, not necessarily a memory that, 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 that we can find cosy. Yeah. Um, so um, that's what I thought of with regard to the commemoration of the Second World War. And, um, and also I think that the British generally, perhaps for a long time, have tended again to have too, too cosy a view of the Second World War and too trite a view of the Second World War. So that um, it seems to me that we tend to say, well, you know, this is a crisis and we pull together. Now, the great thing is that, of course, the Second World War wasn't that terrible a crisis for the British because casualties were low, because Britain was never invaded, because, you know, bizarre though it may sound, Britain got off lightly in the Second World War. If you talk to Germans or Russians or even the French, they would say, yes, indeed, the Second World War did remodel our country in really spectacular ways, new constitution, huge numbers of casualties, complete need in the case of large parts of Western Europe to refound the country. But they wouldn't conceivably say, this is something you'd want to live through again. So I think they'd say, you know, the parallel is something you can use to understand, but not something where you can kind of have a template that can be repeated. That's really interesting. Richard, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to History and Conversation. Please subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Find updates on our website, history.ac.uk. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at IHR underscore history and on Facebook and Instagram too.